the most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Solvable. I'm your host, Jacob Weisberg. My Solvable is to get one million women and girls to learn how to code. My Solvable is breaking the wall of depression. My Solvable is to take energy to where communities are. I want to tackle this problem because I know it can be solved. We're excited to share with you a new season of conversations with leaders and changemakers about how to solve the world's biggest problems. This is an extraordinary moment. We're living through a global pandemic. And in the United States, we're experiencing the most powerful protest movement of my lifetime against police brutality and racial injustice. It's a time of great possibility. Our society seems to be open to the kinds of moral and social transformations that were much harder to imagine before the virus and before the killing of George Floyd. For this, our second season, I'll be joined again by my Pushkin co-founder, Malcolm Gladwell, and journalist and friend, Ann Applebaum, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and staff writer at The Atlantic. To start this season, we're focusing on two problems, racial injustice and the 2020 election. We can have an election that is participatory with, with robust turnout in 2020. Justice isn't blind. We have to be far more critical and thoughtful and have that lens on. On today's episode, we hear from an international expert on nonviolent protest. Let's solve this one big issue. Let's have more racial equality. And then we are going to look at our narcissism of small differences later. When the outcry went up over George Floyd's killing, peaceful demonstrators took to the streets in Minneapolis, then in other cities across the country and across the globe, and a problem arose. It's a problem we've seen elsewhere. Bad actors, outliers with destructive agendas, overtaking the news coverage by engaging in retaliatory violence. This isn't a new issue. 
It's one peaceful protesters have long faced in South Africa, Egypt, Ukraine, Tunisia, and during Occupy Wall Street. Serja Popovic is a Serbian activist and scholar of social movements. Organizers from around the world have turned to him for advice about how to strengthen and propel their movements. Popovic is the executive director of the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies, or CANVAS. He literally wrote a user's manual for successful social change. Our host, Ann Applebaum, lives in Poland. She spoke to Popovic from his home in Belgrade in Serbia. Here's their conversation. My syllable is to create social change through the successful and strategic nonviolent movement. So, Serja, why is this your solvable? In other words, what makes this issue personal to you? Well, first of all, I started very young. On my freshman year on the university, we were faced with a, with a crazy regime in Belgrade back there in the 90s. And you kind of had two choices. You can fight or you can flee. I guess I was too stubborn to flee, so I stayed and fight. Together with a group of friends, we launched a movement called Otpor, which is a Serbian word for resistance, and then built from 11 people to 70,000 people, eventually getting rid of the bad guy, Milosevic. And I kind of am addicted to the idea of the social change through people power movements ever since. You originally began Otpor, you and your friends, um, without any experience. You hadn't run protests before. You hadn't organized a movement before. You know, and now you're able to advise people. So how did you begin thinking through the problem in the beginning? Was it just spontaneous or did you plan? First of all, uh, we started by doing it without planning, which is why it took us nine years to actually do it. So in <laughs> 92, we did a little bit of the of the locking ourselves in the campuses, singing for peace kind of stuff. It didn't work because it didn't involve the rural people. Uh, then 96, 97, a lot of people were mobilized. We expanded to the smaller places. Uh, we protested for 100 days, day by day by day. This will figure out that everyday protest is probably not the best way to do it because it's very exhausting. So we figure out that it is the unity thing that we are missing. Most of the protesters in the world get involved in a protest and then they say we are too busy to plan. So uh, learning by doing and making mistakes is actually the best way to do stuff, but it's very slow. So I would strongly advocate to the people to start reading books and learn from other people's mistakes rather than learning from their own. How did you break it down into solvable pieces? How should people who want to create change think about that? For a successful protest, you need so much more than the protest. You need an idea of what should be different, what we call vision of tomorrow. Then you need to share this vision with the different groups. Then you need to work with the people you are not normally alike and probably disagree on many other stuff to really get to the change. So you need to take a, a really sober look at the groups you need. And then, then without politicizing and ideologizing thing, you approach these groups. And then you try to figure out how you work together for the change that benefits everybody. Because you need to understand social change is a very... Uh, kind of selfish uh, for many people. And the trick in these things is to find this unifying proposition, which is the smallest common denominator from the groups you want to mobilize. And very important, you want to agree on what you agree, but you also want to agree what you disagree. So this is not about the things that, that are different among us. We leave this thing for later. 
but let's solve this one big issue. Let's get rid of, of communism. Let's get rid of Milosevic. Uh, let's make uh, more racial equality and so on and so forth. And then we are going to look at our narcissism of small differences later. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the nonviolent piece of it as well, because the civil rights movement in the 1960s was successful you know, not only because people were extremely brave and and very disciplined in their nonviolent tactics, but what about the argument that because those demonstrations existed alongside more aggressive protests by groups like the Black Panthers that brought attention to the nonviolent movement? Is that a, you know, do you do you need some element of danger in order for people to admire and and follow nonviolent leaders? Well, first of all, uh, uh need to understand that uh, there is a historic proof that the nonviolent struggle works. And there is a very serious study done by two American scholars, Maria Stefan and Erika Chenovet. And they were looking about uh, 323 different movements in the last century and actually figured out that the nonviolent movements are twice more likely to succeed. The Steins actually studies and were looking at the movements that actually had the violent flank. And that's the flank that some, sometimes resort to the violence. And, uh, and they actually prove that the movements without the violent flank are more likely to succeed. And the movements with violent flank, for example, the, the uh, anti-apartheid movement in South Africa did have the violent flank, which is the sole reason why, why Nelson Mandela was sitting in jail for so many years. They are more likely to succeed when they get rid of this flank. For a successful nonviolent movement, you need participation. The more people participate and also the more diverse people participate in the movement, the more you're likely to success. And there are numerous studies that show that if there is a protest about whatever topic in the world, which is likely to be cheerful, uh, massive, peaceful, nice, with a lot of music and probably some pranks, I will probably come in, I'll bring my wife and I will bring my kids. And they're at this point for and six. By the way, the kids are these, these lovely creatures you hear in the, in the background. If this is the place where somebody will burn a building and burn a car, and then there will be a tear gas, I'll probably come without the kids. And then if this is the place where somebody will shoot around live rounds, I'll probably not appear at all. So when you take a look at the level of risk, it's really connected to the participation. So the more nonviolent you make it, the more peaceful you make it, the more you you put the risk bar down, the more people are likely to participate. The more people are likely to participate, and the same study proves that you need between 3 and 5% of the society to participate in the campaign, to get a successful campaign. So taking a look at this, the movements really developed skills to overcome the violent groups, to build a nonviolent discipline. It's actually a skill. What do you mean by skill? What's a, what, what, give me an example of a, a skill that people can learn. So if you play violence against the state, this is selecting the boxing ring to play against the Mike Tyson. Your opponent has, the, has the, uh, a social contract to use violence. He or she has a police. He or she has a military. So this is your place of weakness. So whatever argument you use, this is the first level, is explain to your people that you are weaker if you're using violence. Uh, Step number two is uh, select tactics which are less likely to produce violence. So violence occurs on when you use tactics of concentration. The protests, the marches, speaking common language, this is where your troops meet their troops. This is where the violence happens. So if you instead boycott things, and this is what the South African movement did, if you instead hit pots and pans from the windows, if you instead use other methods of dispersion, 
There will be no conflict. If you must have tactics of concentration, you're angry, you want to shape short numbers, the people want to go out in the street, the people are really upbeat about the marches and stuff like that, organize your own security. You have seen people in U.S. protests, you have seen people in many protests across the world organizing their own security. The purpose of the security is to protect your own people, but also to protect police from your own people. So if you take a photos of Burmese protest, you see monks in the front range. If you take a look at the Serbian protest, you'll see girls, disabled people, in the front ranks. Why so? Because they're less likely to attack the police. So this is how you structure your organization when you go to the protest. You want to control your own people because there may be, uh, uh, you know, crazy heads there. There may be drunk people. They may be agent provocateurs that are infiltrated in your group in order to start violence. It has been done with a, with a protest group in the history. The thing is you need to be committed to nonviolence. You need to preach it and teach it to your group. You want to train your people not to resort to the violence. Remember, in almost none of the cases, it is not the police that you're targeting. You're targeting the government, you're targeting injustice, you're targeting the bad rules, you're targeting corrupt officials. So basically, you really want to police, pull police on your side. You actually want them to join the protest. But the only way to do it is not throwing objects on them, but talking to them. Yeah. Well, in the U.S., as you've seen in the last couple of weeks, some police have joined protests and in, in very notably in a few places. But what about in other situations where the protest is about the police? How do you how do you prevent po- protesters from um, from lashing out? And why shouldn't they? Remember, it's like every time when it comes to human rights violation, it is the person with a name who does it. What do you mean a person with a name? So the police didn't do it. The person with the name did it. So it's not about the police. It is this four policemen did it. And they have names and badges and numbers, and they should be punished and prosecuted, while the rest of the police should be there to preserve law and order. And it is in the best interest of all of us to take this rotten apples out. What about the argument that, you know, sometimes a police force or, you know, is is simply structured in a way that that it can't be changed. I mean, there's a, and, th- and this, by the way, is not just an argument you hear in the U.S. You know, we heard it in communist countries after the fall of communism. There was this idea that, you know, you need to ban or abolish secret police forces because, you know, they'll just come back in a new form. And these are people who are unreformable. Are there, are there unreformable institutions? So when you have a situation like this, especially with history, of, of racial abuse and racial intolerance, like in the U.S., you need to build confidence. You need a joint place where us and them meet. It is the us and them mentality which brought us here at the first place. So whether you're talking about the social clubs, whether you're talking about the youth recreation clubs, you need a place where people can touch a policeman or a policewoman, where they can talk to him or her and figure out that they are, you know, they are people like ourselves. And also these people from the police force, they need the way to communicate with a culture they will be policing. This is very, very difficult problem to solve. It it has been solved in many countries, but actually bridging this social distance and bridging this cultural distance and building this joint space is where you solve the cause of the problem. Overseeing police, putting cameras on the police, you're curing the symptom. But the real problem with this illness is that people don't understand the self. They're coming from a very different world and they're coming from the history of intolerance 
And this is where I think systemic problem like this should be addressed. And that works for U.S., that works for any given movement in the world. Why do you say it works for any given movement in the world? Don't we all have deep cultural differences? Aren't there you know, profound you know, differences between the United States and the Philippines and South Africa and Poland? I mean, how can you, how can you give advice to these very different kinds of movements with different histories and ethnicities and, and different kinds of education? Well, what, what happens when you, when you meet a group? I mean, the way, the way my organization works is that we get invitation from the group, invitations from a variety of different groups. And that can be an anti-racist activist in, a, in the U.S. And that can be a you know, gender right activist who is cared about the abortion legislation coming in Poland. And that can be something in Uganda fighting the brutal dictatorship. And every time they come in with the same sentence, like, okay, our case is different. So yes, it worked well, great in your own case, but in our situation, you need to figure out everything is different. And this is true. The contexts are different. The mentalities are different. The level of existing political and social space is very different in Uganda, Poland, and US. Uh, but when you take a look at the principles throughout the history, the principles are, are more or less the same. You will never win without knowing what you want. So most of the movements that died uh, in the early phase died because they knew what they are against, but they didn't really knew what they, what they want. Uh, you will never, never win without building the wider coalition of the people and building the unity and holding to this unity throughout the rough times. Successful movements are always carefully planned. There are only two types of movements in this world. They're either spontaneous or successful. They can't be both. And you will never win without understanding that one single act of violence uh, can send uh, all of your nonviolent efforts under ice. So if you apply these principles, then it will work in Maldives and Poland and Georgia and Ukraine and Egypt and everywhere. If you kind of make mistake in some of these principles, it is very likely that that you will fail. A lot of research, a lot of practice, a lot of movements have, have tried this in the past. And actually, however different you are, you will never win without these three principles. And that's, that's something you figure out when you deal with this for like 15 years. So, Sergio, what are three or four things that people listening to this, to this podcast can do right now to help fix the kinds of problems they see around them? Uh, well, first of all, they can get active and uh, they need to figure out that every change in the world comes from us. So watching it and waiting for somebody else to solve the thing or posting it and sharing it and liking it, it's not enough. You need to get involved. You need to get invested. You need to get your friends in. You need to recruit more people if you're passionate for the change. Uh, second, read books, watch movies. There are amazing books and movies uh, written on the matter, starting with a, with a little 45-minute uh, 10 videos which you can find on our website on how to build a successful movement. So if you want to invest 45 minutes of your life, go on canvasopedia.org and check it. Uh, but most important, uh, you need to figure out that, that uh, the world won't change by itself, that even the smallest creature can change the destiny of the world. And whether or, or not you are the big fan of the Lord of the Rings, you need to imagine yourself as a hobbit. And uh, every time it's a hobbit. So you need, to, you need to understand that without you, things will change. And don't watch, get involved. Uh, if you're angry, try to figure out how to turn this anger into hope. If you are hopeful, mobilize more hopeful things. If you have 
talents and skills. Uh, please join some of the of the progressive movements in this planet, and never ever lose hope. Serja, thank you so much. Thank you, and such a pleasure and thrill uh, uh, working with my one of my most favorite journalists on this planet. <laughs> and one of my favorites too. That was Ann Applebaum speaking with Serja Popovich. Serja is the executive director of the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies, or Canvas. You can find a link to the videos he mentioned on the Solvable website and at canvasopedia.org. Solvable is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. The show is produced by Camille Baptista, Jocelyn Frank, and Catherine Girardot. Mia Lobel is our executive producer. Special thanks to Khadija Holland, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Eric Sandler, and the whole Pushkin team. We'll be back next week with the next episode in this mini-series about organizing and racial justice. I'll talk with Incha Rahman about how to solve mass incarceration. I hope you'll join us. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.